Let's look together now, beginning in verse 14. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. The word of the Lord says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Would you bow with me and let's pray together once more. Father, having read your perfect and holy word, we ask that you would move through your word. Lord, we ask that you would move through the reading of your word, that you would teach us that you would help us, Father, to understand, to grow in our faith, to heed the commandments and the instructions that you have given us. Father, we pray that you might push a foolish and frail servant out of the way. That, Holy Spirit, you might use your word to help us to grow in spite of the one preaching from your word. God, would you encourage those who need encouragement? Father, would you comfort those of us who need comfort? Would you motivate and challenge those of us who need to be challenged? Would you convict us of our sin that we might return to you? Lord, we love you so very much. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing in this very last section of 1 Thessalonians. And so if you've been with us through any part of this sermon series, you'll remember that through the vast majority of the beginning of First Thessalonians, there's a lot of doctrine, there's a lot of encouraging words and notes, there's a lot of thankfulness, there's a lot of blessings, there's a little bit of doctrinal things that are tucked in there, here and there along the way, and in every chapter, sometimes multiple times in each chapter, he talks about the second coming of the Lord. So then when we reach this very end of the book, he begins to get very practical. Everything is very simple, very straightforward. Just as as we just read, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays evil for evil, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. In two verses, we get six direct commands. As I said last week, I don't know if Paul was just running out of parchment, if there wasn't enough paper available to him and so he was trying to squeeze as much as he could into this last little section but i do believe that every word is inspired by the holy spirit 
And even though some of these commands might not be expounded upon, even though some of these commands are very short and brief, even though it's very concise in its instruction, it doesn't make it any less important. It doesn't mean that it should be followed any less or hold any less significance in our hearts. And so this morning we're going to look at, honestly, just verses 14 and 15. We're going to look at verses 14 and 15 together and work through some of these commands. I want us to remember what Paul is writing these commands in light of. Because he mentions the second coming of the Lord so often in 1 Thessalonians, we have to remember that all of these commands, all of these instructions are in light of the fact that Jesus is returning. Just as we talked about last week, we encourage one another and build one another up in light of the fact that Jesus will return one day. We don't just give trite little sayings of, well, at least this didn't happen or at least that didn't happen. We look at one another with earnesty, with honesty and say, listen, I know that it's bad right now, but I want to assure you there is coming a day where the Lord will make this right. He is coming again, that our encouragement should look different because the Lord is going to return. So we look at the urging of verse 14. And I, I just love the word urge. It's an interesting word, but it's urging someone along, forcing someone along. Usually when I have been urged, it has not been in a nice and polite way. I usually think back to football days. I was an overweight lineman. Now I'm just an overweight pastor, but as an overweight lineman, my coach would constantly urge us in not so positive ways to run another sideline to sideline, to do another bear crawl, to have another up down. And our urging was that if you didn't do it, there was more in the future. If you didn't run that suicide, and you didn't put forth enough effort, I urge you, put forth all your effort in this run or we will do another run. We will go again and it will be farther and you will be forced to go harder and faster. That's what I think of when I think of urging. But I don't think that Paul is urging us with whips at our backs. He's not urging us as though if you don't do this, there is punishment coming. You're going to run another suicide. You're going to do 17 more up downs. That's not the attitude with which Paul writes these words. He is urging because it is an urgent matter. Because it is important, he is urging and encouraging and demanding that this has to be followed because the time is short. Because Jesus is coming back, I'm telling you guys, you've got to straighten up how you're living for Christ. Because if you don't, there's going to be people who don't get caught up in that rapture that he just described in chapter 4. This is not an urging of, I have a whip at your back. This is an urging and a pleading of, if we don't change what we're doing, then there are going to be other folks who miss out on the goodness of God. And so he says, admonish the idol. You know, throughout all of human history, from the beginning of Christianity until today, I want you to know that Christians have always had an incredible work ethic. We have an incredible work ethic because God commands us not to be idle. What's the most famous saying that turns into this little trite cliche thing that we say? Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Isn't that what we say? All the time we tell folks, you find something to do. Keep yourself busy. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. That probably has roots in this verse. Admonish the idol. I know admonish is kind of a word we don't use very often, but just some synonyms, warn, take to task, 
reprimand, rebuke, scold. Take the idol to task. As Christians, we are supposed to be working and working hard. We should be the ones who stand out at our jobs because we work hard. Now, I think that has infiltrated our culture in such a way that it, it kind of has become negative. Like, I don't know about you guys, but like when the French take vacation, they look at they say, listen, I'm about to take my vacation. Do not call me. I will not be in touch with you. You cannot email me. I'm gone for three months, and I do not want to hear from this place. And if something falls through the cracks, it just falls through the cracks. We do not care. We are French. That's how it is. They take vacation. They're gone. Untouchable, and it's three months of vacation. And here in the United States, the vast majority of us, I think, are the kind of people that we go to have surgery, and we call our boss, and we go, all right, listen, I'm so sorry, man, but um, I have appendicitis, and they tell me my appendix is about to burst. So they're going to put me under, and I'm going to have to be operated on, but they say the surgery should only last like three or four hours tops. And once I'm, once I'm back and, and they get the, the anesthesia out of me, I'll, I'll, I'll log in, I'll check those emails, I'll get right back on that purchase order, okay? I can, I can handle it. I, don't worry. I'll get right back to it. Hang up the phone. That's how we treat work, a lot of us in the United States. That's not admonishing the idol. That's idolizing our job. Because what happens is we, we develop this sense of security in our work ethic. If I work hard, it will be okay. And see, that's not what God intended. God intended for us to work hard, to set an example, but to rely always on the fact that He is God. And so look with me in the book of Genesis. Turn with me. Go back to the very beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. We see in Genesis, there in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. There is a rhythm that God established in the very order of creation. You work hard, you bust your tail, you get work done, and then you rest. He set aside one whole day for resting. This was one of the most difficult commandments for the Jewish people Throughout their history, anytime somebody conquered the Jewish people and they said, you will go to work. Imagine being slaves in Egypt and you, you are a slave in Egypt and you have this example of God resting, but the Egyptians are not very understanding of that, right? The Romans, when they occupy Israel, they're not very understanding of, um, could I have a religious exemption, uh, please, for the whole uh, we work every day thing because um, I'm Jewish and uh, it's against my religion to work on the seventh day. Wait, wait. Time out, time out. Everybody else, all the other humans, we work every day. We work every single day. We don't have food as plentiful as they're going to have in 2022, okay? We got to work every day. And you Jews are telling me that sitting on your rear end doing nothing is part of your religious belief? Get out of here. Get back to work. You ain't, you ain't taking a day off. That's crazy. Folks, people have been trying to claim religious exemptions for things that the rest of the world counted as crazy for a long, long time. And the Jews had a very hard time with this. But the principle behind it 
is, is, is explained a little bit further in Exodus chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Look, look with me when the Ten Commandments are given in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. He says, remember the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Don't skip that part. You got six days. You and I have six days to work. Not half-heartedly, not halfway, to work and work hard. To put in the work and do all the work that we're supposed to do. Do all the work that needs to be done. Get it done in six days. But on the seventh day, that's the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner who is within your gates. For six days, in six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. When these are rehashed as Moses is about to lead the people over the Jordan River into the promised land, as he's about to turn the reins over to Joshua and Joshua's going to lead them, he goes over all the law again and he goes over these Ten Commandments. And in, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, he says, Because you were slaves in Egypt... And you didn't free yourself from Egypt on your own. You didn't work hard enough to not be a slave in Egypt anymore. Instead, the Lord your God delivered you from the land of Egypt. The Sabbath day is not about anything else than recognizing God is the one who provides. I don't have to work every single day because I can rest on the seventh day. Because my God will handle what I need. I work hard for six. That's not an excuse to be lazy. Admonish the idol. But on the seventh day, rest. And if I know our church, a lot of us don't struggle as much with being idle as we do with idolizing work. I can answer one more email. I can answer one more text message. I, I can handle this one more report. I just got my kids to bed, or I just got home from this sporting event that I had to drive an hour and a half away to be at, and I'm I'm just going to do one or two more things for my job. Folks, at some point, you have to put it down, and you have to rest. It's, It's in the very order of creation. It's how God established the universe. And now, I'm not saying Sunday has to be your Sabbath day. If, if you go to the etymology of the word Saturday, we call it Saturday because it ties back to the Sabbath. Remember, Jesus rose on very early on the first day of the week. We stopped worshiping and gathering before Sabbath and do it on Sunday because Sunday is the first day of the week that is the Lord's day, that we remember that the Lord was raised from the dead. That's why we worship on Sunday. That tradition began after Jesus rose from the dead. They began to meet together early in the morning on the first day of the week because that's when they found the tomb empty. And so for 2,000 years, that's what we've done. And somewhere along the way, We started preaching to one another that Sunday is the Sabbath day. Well, I mean, if we're going to get all technical about it, we call Saturday Saturday because it used to be the Sabbath day, day seven. But it doesn't matter if Saturday is your Sabbath day. It doesn't matter if Sunday is your Sabbath day. The rhythm is work six, rest one. And I think that a lot of us are working seven and resting none. Folks, If you work yourself to death, you're telling God, I have to do this on my own. 
I don't need you to provide for me. I can work hard enough to make it all fall into place. When we become workaholics, we're trying to satisfy a need within ourselves. We're trying to shore up an insecurity within ourselves. And God tells us sometimes you need to sit down and kick your feet back and rest and relax. That doesn't mean that you sit back and have a 24-hour Netflix binge, okay? That's, that's not necessarily the definition of resting, okay? Because sometimes you watch these shows that get your mind going worse than if you were, um, you know, working and getting all your, your work stuff clotted up in your mind. Listen, those of you guys that watch these true crime things, I don't see how you go to bed after that, okay? That has to get your mind going because those are true crimes. It's in the title. People did that stuff. It's scary stuff, okay? I watch that stuff and I have to like load my gun before I go to sleep because I don't know who's coming into my house and going to cut off my skin and wear it because that's what crazy people have done. Why are you watching this? That's not resting. Take some time to unplug. And I'm also not saying that you got to like sit Indian style and go, oh, this is not the picture of resting either. Resting for every person can be different, but what is consistent in everybody's rest is letting your mind relax, letting your mind be at ease, taking your troubles and your worries and casting them on God because he's the one who will work it out for you. Recognizing I don't have to work today because God is still working, because my God is still on the throne. And so we admonish the idol and tell them, hey, get your sorry self to work. Warn them. Jesus is coming back and we got work to do. But for those of us who the opposite is true, I also want to admonish you this morning and warn you that it is indeed sinful to be a workaholic, to depend completely on yourself and not take a day to rest. So that you can say to the Lord by your actions, I trust in you more than me. So we admonish the idol. We warn them that there is work to be done. You see somebody being idle, don't, don't, don't smack them upside the head, but warn them, admonish them, reprimand them, scold them, rebuke them, take them to task. And I, I think we've gone to extremes on that. So, you know, don't, don't hit them with a brick or anything, okay? And if you're a workaholic in here, I hope that you can take in your own heart from somebody who struggles with it. Guys, in, in, in seminary, my grades started slipping because I was working as a supervisor at Best Buy. I was a young married man. I was volunteering at my church, and I was going to seminary full time. I made a C, and so I walked into work, and I said, give me a different position. Give me a different job. i got to do something else because I'm not supposed to work at Best Buy for the rest of my life. I went every time that they called. I, I was trying to earn money, pay down our house. I was, man, I can do this. I can, I can work hard enough. Jessica was a teacher, and she was making more money than me. And it just, I just, I'm supposed to be the provider in our household. So I would work hard, and I would feel good about the work that I did because I brought home a paycheck, and I put in extra hours. But all of that was saying to God, I'm going to provide for my family, and I'm going to work hard. And all the while, God was going, you're supposed to be preparing for ministry. The job at Best Buy is the bottom of the list. Study my word. Learn how to be a minister. Be a husband to your wife. Participate in your local church. And then make time to go to work. 
And so I rearranged my whole life, flipped my whole priorities upside down. I worked at Best Buy on Mondays and Saturdays, and that was it. It's hard to make those adjustments. I know because I have. It took household adjustments because, let me tell you, working on Monday and Saturday don't pay the bills like working six, seven days a week. But we are to rest and trust in the Lord. And when we work, we work hard. Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So, we work hard, we admonish the idol. He continues in our passage in verse 14, encourage the faint-hearted. Faint-hearted, another word is timid, another word is shy, another word is discouraged. Folks, we have an, an uncanny ability to see somebody who is faint-hearted, who is timid, and drill them further into the ground. You, you know, I don't know if you listen to Rick and Bubba, but they always talk about how hard it is to work there in their studio because they give each other a really hard time. Sometimes they talk about being paralyzed in front of their closet because they can't decide what to wear because they know everything they pick they're going to get made fun of. So they try to pick the thing they're going to get made fun of the least and wear that to work. Folks, we are terrible because that's not something that just happens at Rick and Bubba, okay? That's not just something that happens if you happen to be a lineman or if you happen to work with a bunch of men. We are awful we will take somebody who is timid and insecure and we will drill them further into the ground because we find pleasure and make ourselves feel more secure by pouncing on their insecurity. And what Paul is saying is encourage the faint-hearted. If somebody is timid, if somebody is discouraged, if somebody is shy, remind them that the joy of the Lord is their strength and the Lord's coming back. Have confidence that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, our Lord loves you and died on the cross for you. So you are enough. No matter what you're wearing, no matter how big your nose is, no matter how goofy your eyes are offset, no matter what physical abnormality is going on, no matter who's making fun of you, you are enough. Jesus died for you just the way that you are. And we don't really hear that that often. Most of the time we, we hear the exact opposite. These are things that were going on in the Thessalonian church. Remember earlier we read that they were under much affliction. Paul says admonish the idol because some of them said, well, I can't get work, so I, may, I, may, I must not need to work. So they just sat around every day. He says encourage the faint-hearted because those who were timid and who were scared about the persecution that they were under, the church was pouncing on them and making fun of them instead of building them up. So encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Help the weak. As Christians, we should stand out in society because where everyone else casts the weak aside, we lift the weak up. We help them along. And I don't know about you, there's been plenty of times where I am judgmental of the weak and I am not helpful towards the weak. If it's not a weakness that I share, if it's not a weakness that I can relate to, then I don't understand that weakness and I don't understand why they don't just get up and fix it. Well, you could do something about that. That's, that's not helping the weak. And be patient with them all. I love my daughter with all my heart, but sometimes when we deal with other people, it's like when my daughter tries to tell me a story. 
She's developed this little bit of a stutter that our son Luke did at the same age. She's going to work through it. It's going to be just fine. But she'll come up to you and she'll say, Daddy, I, 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 I want a drink. Sometimes I go make the drink while she's stuck, you know, and then I'll bring it back to her. By the time she's finished to saying, want a drink, I've got the drink to hand to her. And like my brain is already there. I know what she needs, but that's no reason to cut her short. Let her say it. Let her work it out. Be patient with her. That ties right back in to help the weak. Right now, that's a weakness that she has. I run at the mouth nonstop. Talking is not necessarily the biggest problem or weakness for me other than the fact that I put my foot in my mouth constantly. Aside from that, I don't grasp how it's hard for her to say things. My mind is ahead of where she is, and so I want to rush to the conclusion instead of being patient. Folks, you have to admit something that you're very skilled at, that you're helping somebody else do that is unskilled at it, makes you want to rip your hair out. Why do you think the greatest running joke in all of society is training our teenagers to drive? Because all of us have been driving for a while. And then a teenager gets in the car, brake, 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 brake. Because we would have hit the brake, and they should know to hit the brake. Why don't you understand how to do this already? We've been on two trips. You should be driving as well as I'm driving. Put the seatbelt on. Where's the seat? Get the seat. That's why we joke about this. Because we're all impatient with the weak. Be patient with one another. These are the things that if we trust in Christ and we live these things out to the best of our ability, it's going to make a difference in the world. That person that you're being patient with, that's struggling and you're helping them along, it's going to be a huge benefit to them to draw them to Christ to see, man, I'll tell you what, Colton is a Christian and he is being patient with me. And I don't know why everybody else is harsh and short with me, but because Colton is being patient with me, I want to see what's different about Colton. It's just that simple. It's not complicated. So we continue. Verse 15. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And this seems like a tall order, right? You know, evil is something that's not always clearly defined in our minds. Because we're really good at rationalizing, aren't we? And then we expect for evil to be something that, Man, this Grant Barnes said this when we were on our Strength to Stand trip. So we're up there and we're having our church time. And Grant talked about how things that are bad and evil, the devil himself isn't an ugly red dragon. It's not obvious. You don't look and go, ah, that's clearly evil. It's just like with abuse. It's just like with molestation. It's not some stranger that commonly comes and snatches you up in the van. That happens, right? But you know where it most commonly happens? Among peers. Among that relative that you trusted and you thought could be trusted. And then they couldn't be trusted all of a sudden. Because the evil was right there and you didn't see it. You didn't recognize it as evil. Because Lucifer, Satan, was an angel of light. Was the most beautiful among all the angels. You never would have expected for him to be evil, right? You never would have expected the most beautiful to be the most evil. But that's what happens. We are seduced 
by what is evil. And so we rationalize a way that maybe that's not really evil. And so we do things evil to repay good that's been done to us because we're scared. We don't trust the Lord because we rationalize it away in our minds. But it's really important not to repay evil for evil. Jesus came to flip what was given in the commandments in Exodus and in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus. It's not an eye for an eye anymore. If somebody is evil and they gouge out your eye, it is not to repay them with the same evil act so you gouge out their eye. If someone strikes you on one cheek, you turn to them the other. He flipped it on its head. And you know why he flipped it on its head? Because that's what he did for us. He didn't repay evil for evil. And all of us are evil. Everyone who has ever lived aside from Jesus Christ is evil. There is evil bedded into our hearts. The seed of evil is in every single human that is born. It's like a baby whose mother has done cocaine while she was pregnant. That baby is born with an addiction to cocaine. Every one of us who are born are born with an addiction to sin and evil and rebellion from God. And God didn't repay the evil that we've done to him by pouring out his wrath on us. His wrath is just, and it wouldn't have been evil repaying evil, but he went a step further and said, I'm going to repay evil with good. An example that we have of somebody being repaid evil for good can be found again in Genesis. If you're still there, turn with me. When we're back in the book of Genesis, you look in chapter 44. We're in the midst of the story of Joseph. Joseph is a man who was favored by his father and his brothers hated him for it. He was probably a snot-nosed brat. He was probably very cocky and arrogant about being daddy's favorite. So his brothers... They threw him in a well. They sold him into slavery. So for years of his life, he was a slave until he was falsely accused. And then he became a prisoner. And so he spent many years in his life as a prisoner. All because of his brothers. All because of his brothers. All the while, God did all of that so that Joseph would be in just the right position. So that when a worldwide famine hit, Joseph would have prepared Egypt to feed the whole world. God saved the whole world from starvation through Joseph and his trials. And so while Joseph is overseeing the distribution of food, his brothers show up. And so he starts to give them a hard time. And he says, no, 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 you've got to bring your, your other brother back with you. I know you've got another brother. You bring that brother back. And so they bring Benjamin back with them. And then Joseph throws them a lavish, an extravagant feast. It is decadent beyond belief. Every food they could imagine, they are full to the brim. And then he sends them all home with double the grain that they were going to purchase with their money and puts their money back in the top of their sacks. But he also does one thing. He hides his cup in Benjamin's bag. And so he sends them on their way. And this is one of the only other times in Scripture that we find this exact phrase of being repaid evil for good. So look with me in Genesis 44, verses 3 through 5. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? 
Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices his divination? You have done evil in doing this. So repaying evil for good in in the simplest terms is somebody shows you a kindness and you respond with evil. Somebody invites you over for dinner and you steal their jewelry while you're in their home. That's repaying evil for good. And yet that's what Jesus did for us. He paid what we owed. We were and are evil. But Jesus took the wrath that we deserved. He took everything that we had done wrong. He took our evil upon himself and repaid us with good. It's, it's one of those incredible swaps that God makes in his economy. It's the same thing we see in Genesis 50 when Joseph's brothers go to him and they say, look, now that dad's dead, you're definitely going to have us killed or do something terrible to us. And in verse 20 of Genesis chapter 50, Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. In our sin, we meant to do evil to God. In spite of that, God did good for us and to us by sending his only son to die on the cross to repay our evil with his good so that anyone who believes in him can be saved. All it takes is trusting in the good that Jesus has done for us. When we truly trust in the good that Jesus has done for us, it makes us want to run from the evil we were doing. That's why Paul writes all these things. He says to admonish the idol. He says to do these good things, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, being patient, Seeing that no one repays anyone evil for evil. We do these things because that's the picture of the gospel at work in our lives. Paul isn't saying do these things so that you can be saved. He's saying these things are the things that followers of Christ will do. The things that we once desired that were evil. Those desires for evil will fade and our desire for good will grow. Our desire will not be to see evil dominate this world, but to see the good battle back the evil and overcome the evil of this world with good. And I wonder, how many of us are actively doing that? How many of us does that describe our lives? If we truly trust in Jesus, do our lives reflect the trust we say we have in Jesus. When Paul gives these commands of what followers of Jesus will do, as he encourages and urges the Thessalonians to follow the example Christ has left for us, I wonder as these words come across the page 2,000 years, how many of us find that we don't really admonish the idol? Honestly, we idolize our work. How many of us Don't encourage the faint-hearted we pile on. How many of us can't stand to be around weak people? 
if their weakness is something that we can't relate to? How many of us lose our patience with those who are weak? How many of us struggle to be patient with someone? And how many of us end up not only not doing good, but repaying evil for good? Jesus repaid us good for evil so that that might not be our life anymore. This morning, I wonder, are you, are you falling in any of those categories? How many of us need to repent and turn back to the good from the evil that has crept into our hearts? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and for your mercy. We thank you that you did not repay us evil for evil because you are a good God. We thank you that you repaid us good for the evil that we have done to you. Help us, Lord, not to idolize our work. Help us to admonish the idle, to help the weak, to encourage the faint-hearted, to be patient, Lord. Father, I know personally I struggle being patient. Lord, help us to live lives where we follow your example. And instead of paying evil for evil, we repay the evil with good. The same way that you repaid good for our evil. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that's never understood how you gave us good and took our sin upon your cross, the cross we deserve, Pray that they would come to understand this morning that there is only life found in you. That the only good in this world is you. And that they might surrender their heart and their life to you this morning. God, for those of us who are struggling to live the life that you have called us to, we ask and we pray that you would help us, cause us to repent and trust in you completely. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.